Hey everyone, John Clare here, and welcome to episode eight of the EvoFi podcast, a finance podcast for humans. How's everyone doing out there? I hope you're well. On this episode, we welcome Robin Farzad, host of the weekly podcast Full Disclosure, which can be found on NPR One. If you've not heard Robin's podcast before, I urge you to check it out. It can be best described as a fusing of culture and business, or perhaps a melding of personality with finance. And we're super lucky to have Robin on the podcast, where we got to talk about everything from his career to date, starting with his first job on Wall Street at Goldman Sachs, then on to his gig at Business Week as a writer and special correspondent on the PBS NewsHour. There's really so much to discuss with Robin, as you'll see, and we could have continued for at least another hour. Today with me here in the studio, we've got the Evo Phi team, Dave O'Brien, Penny Lowbread, and myself as well. If you're not already a subscriber, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We also love your feedback and questions, so drop us a line at evofipodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter or Instagram at evofipodcast. Remember our good old-fashioned disclaimer that I have to say every time? Well, here goes one more time. This podcast is 100% free of any tax, legal, or investment advice. Our goal here is education and to have a little fun, too. If you need advice in any of the areas mentioned tailored to your specific circumstances, please feel free to give us a call, and we'll see how we can help. With that said, here's the EvoFi team talking with the man, the legend, the author, and all-around nice guy, Robin Farzad. Enjoy. You need to do a Pat Benatar warm up. Picked up Pat. Okay, good. Good. Can you hear me? I can hear you barely. They don't sell pickled peppers in packs. I don't like to talk. All right, let's get started. Okay. Welcome everyone to episode eight of the EvoFi podcast, where we are lucky enough to have Robin Farzad, local celebrity and uh, renaissance man, uh, where I've affectionately titled this podcast fusing culture with business and personality with finance. I think I heard that on one of your podcasts, probably. But I think there's some parallels to what we do here. So we are incredibly lucky to have you here, Robin. So thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, and for those of you who don't, who don't know, Robin is the host of the weekly podcast, Full Disclosure, on NPR One. He's a former writer for Bloomberg Business Week, a special correspondent for PBS NewsHour, and he's got a book out. So we're looking forward to talking about all these topics with him. So before we get started, I'm going to look around the table here. Anything that we need to talk about up front now that we're back in full, full swing for the second season of the podcast? I'm just going to point out that it's the beginning of college football season. And um, as has been the case for several years, Penny has started the office football pool, which I enthusiastically lose at the bottom of the rankings every year. So let's see if I can have a repeat of that. Robin, you, you a big college football fan? I'm a huge Miami Hurricanes fan. It's yeah. where I grew up. And I, I just remember it's the team I most cheered for as a kid. It's broken my heart a lot over 15 years. You know, you guys follow ACC ball here, but hope springs eternal in September. I'm a Hokie. You have Mark yeah. Richt now. You have a great coach oh. now. Y'all had a great season last year. We choked. You did, but you know what? You built it's a, not built enough. A I mean, the problem with the Miami Hurricanes is you 
you, you don't hang on to your players for more than two years because it's like NFL you. And so you have this very small window to win a national championship. And if you don't, you know, suddenly 15 years passes and we're very sad as a fan base. He's a great recruiter. Thank you. Yeah, he is. You'll be good. This is, we have a ringer now. This is great college football. We got Penny right up front. She is all over it. I love it. John and I couldn't name the, the coach or a player. Brooks an, Davis, right? I'm an Auburn grad, so I'm a big SEC girl. Oh, gosh. Yeah. 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 I don't do that ACC. But thing. the Hurricanes, they're always, they're always good, even when they're bad. They're still the Hurricanes. So as a Hokie it's fan. It's been a long drought. It's been 15 yeah. years since they last won a national championship. And I was spoiled in the 80s. I mean, I, I went and they, they were in contention every year. Uh, it seems like they always are, too. So do you ever go to games now? I do. Yeah. I go in Miami where it's really bizarre in that they're this world-class football university, but they have to play 40 miles north on the Dade-Broward line, and I catch them on the road. They have this committed fan base, but um, it's been a long spell. It's been a long yeah. route. Well, we'll see how this season goes. I don't know. The Hokies play Florida State the first game of the season. That's on Monday. So we'll who's Miami playing first, did we say? You I know? think they play LSU. Okay. Oh, it's not easy Texas either. Is something. It? it ain't easy being cheesy. Yeah. All right, so here, here's how we get it started. And Penny went to go get a, one of my props for this particular uh, part, but thank you. Uh, we found that rather than diving straight into uh, the real deep questions, we do something called the Evo 5, uh, and which are kind of five questions. You ever watch Inside the Actor Studio? Yes. Yeah. This so is a put, financial take on yeah, that. Yeah, right. We ask so, you a question like the trainers. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> again, just to have a little bit of fun, sure. and I feel not that we need to get the wheels turning with you Hit clearly me. clearly you were all over it from the first but let's go to a couple here so first what was your first job robin out of college or any any job even younger maybe if you had one before college let's say going door to door to sell um stationery and postage cards for that promotion you'd see on the back of comic books where if you sell this you can get a fishing rod or anything i was known as that guy in our nice. condominium complex I bet you were pretty successful, actually, just from judging from your personality. No, it was three or four, you know, fellow students, mothers who took pity on me and made big orders, and then <laughs> you'd get invariably disappointed. They'd sell you, they'd send you this plastic watch. It's like in a Christmas story, where you're waiting for the decoder, and it's that was my first, you know, lesson in that. And right before I left the college, I had a job selling frozen lemonade at at arts festivals in Miami and at the Miami Metro Zoo, and that was that was kind of a, an entrepreneurial coming of age. Awesome. Awesome. This is this is an interesting one. What is your favorite word? Green. And why would that be? You know what? Let me take that back. Dadu. Dadu. That's what my son called me. Okay. My first child. Oh. Yeah. No, really. Right here, I right had to think about that hard. I mean, I now he's trying to call me D. <laughs> D. What's up, D? I was like, can you call back to calling me Dadu? And I missed that. How old's your son now? He's eight and a half. And how many kids do you have? I have two. I also have a five-year-old who's starting mm -hmm. kindergarten. But that was a real uh, turning point in my life to have my son who arrived early. This is when we were in New York. And when he was, when he came to him, was finding himself and coming out of that haze, for that to have been his, his first word is just uh, it's a special string in my heart that that tugs at. Yeah. I bet. Do you get it on recording anywhere? I find myself, when my kids did that, I wanted to record every word that they would say. Yeah, we had the old flip camera that was made by Cisco, and I, I have every day of his life on, on camera, now on you know Dropbox and iCloud yeah. and everything, and I revisit it every morning when yeah. I wake up. I have a couple oh. of those on my computer, yeah, a couple audio clips wherever you're having a tough day, you play that and everything's all right. Mine was my daughter singing Fat Bottom Girls. Oh, gosh. So 
yeah. But I won't sing it for you now. Oh, you gonna take me home tonight. Penny and I are silent because uh, both of us had kids before the digital age, so. <laughs> Good thing. All right, Robin. Number three. This is a tricky one. I've never asked this one before. And I'm not sure how this one's going to go, but how old would you be if you didn't know how old you are and why? I'm a child at heart. I don't know if I'm answering this question correctly. I'd be in kindergarten. My formative experience <laughs> in this country was coming here, you know, as a as a three year old, just on the eve of the Iranian Revolution, and learning pop culture and English and everything here, in one explosion. And and it's constantly in my mind, kind of coming to as a as a child and as an American, say a, a kindergartner, a a first grader. I'm still very close to my kindergarten teacher. She remains a mentor awesome. to me. So I'd say I am stuck. I mean, you want to talk about arrested development. Yeah, I'm at five or six. If I didn't know or if I could pause time or go back and revisit a year, it would be 1982. Oh, awesome. Huh. What a great answer. Yeah, great answer. All right. This is the goat question. I learned goat from Penny here. Goat, greatest of all time. I'm sure you're mm -hmm. using, yeah, of course I know what that is. I didn't know that. All right. In business, sport, or entertainment, who's your goat? That comes to mind. I have to say, in business, to my mind, it would be Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, who, um, if you're, you know, we're talking about the index fund and the ETF and really revolutionizing and democratizing investing, has really changed my life, has changed the life of so many Americans. If you look at how uh, Vanguard and ultra low cost ETFs and the and the the fee wars kind of played out over the past five or six years. And go back and read his senior thesis at Princeton University and the, the founding of the first, you know, Vanguard S&P 500 fund. You could never have imagined that that kind of be the market, don't beat the market would have really taken over the country the way it was. I'm old enough to remember, you know, when I first got bar mitzvah money and I bought a couple shares of Coca-Cola and Chrysler or whatever it was back in the day, you'd have to call my discount broker and, and wait on the line and get a quote right. and everything. This was before Yahoo Finance, before anything else. If you want to buy a mutual fund, you have to send in a check, registered mail, call in an 800 number at the close. I mean, and I, you know, I'm a wonk. I'm looking at a Vanguard ETF uh, two days ago. It was Vanguard Total VT. It has something like 8,900 stocks in it mm. across the globe. Emerging market exposure, developed market, small cap, large cap, this, that, that. Hugely liquid, 15 basis points it charges. I mean, who would have thought? Yeah. Now there's free no-load funds. And everybody's just jumping all over each other to yeah. offer no commissions, waived commissions. It's a, it's a fascinating time. Yeah. One thing I want to get into a little bit later uh, is I was listening to one of your podcasts with uh, Tom Gaynor, I think, mm -hmm. and he was talking about indexing and how too much of a good thing becomes a bad thing and talking about the proliferation of indexing and so forth. And I want to talk maybe a little bit more about that a little bit later and sure. uh, whether that is a, a real risk or something still. But I am always looking for a better answer, like the research fundamentals people, the dimensional people. There is an open, for, for the real Wonkistan people like us, there is a real open debate. Um, you know, the Vanguard means, the cap-weighted means, the set-it-and-forget-it thing has been the way to go. But mm -hmm. I do believe there is going to be a, a um, factor-based reckoning. Yeah, I agree. We actually have a dimensional guy coming on in a few weeks to the podcast, so we'll have to... Maybe anything we want we talk about here, I'll put to put to him as well. So, uh, but anyhow, okay, cool. So here's the this is the multimedia part. Okay, that's why I had Penny go get my device. So this is what we call the name that tune segment in the in the essence of the podcast. Um, now 
I was listening to one of your shows a few weeks back, and I have to say I'm impressed with your your eclectic musical taste from Pat Benatar to I heard Loverboy Lover Boy this morning from That's last right. week's podcast. Turned me loose. Yeah, it was nice. So I figure we're in a safe place. So I heard this discussed in one of your shows, and I'm going to test to see how. Do you see, by the way, how I'm stuck in 1982? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Which band? Name it. Asia. Very Saga. good. Very oh. good. That was. Oh, didn't even take him three seconds yeah. to do that. I'm a junkie for that. And I so, gave a chapter in my book that title. Did you find yourself in '82? Ah, uh, cool. We're gonna talk about that then. So I'm taking you into all sorts of cul-de-sacs. You might as well keep me here till three o'clock. That's fine. Is the wave file format long enough? What do you have over there? The, we got plenty of time. The, the Zoom the, yeah. H20. Yeah. With Top mat packs. To Top the setup. of the. <laughs> All right, so here's the deal. I promise if this doesn't come out well, we'll edit it out. All right, so here we go. I'm going to play a couple seconds. We'll edit in the full song in a second. Mm. Here we go. Don't know what you got, folks, on. Nice. Well done, Robbie. Really? Wow. That's, you were the first. Yeah. I was worried it was going to be Debbie Gibson or one of those. I had to wait until it took me into the melodramatic. Time. I wouldn't I wouldn't do that to you. I heard Tell you guys. Now what you got? I did that. I, I heard it. that on the I show heard it. a couple And weeks. I said, that is the song. Yeah. But I played the instrumental part because I wanted to see how much of a fan you were. So well done. Thank you. Actually, of all the guests we've had, you're the only one who's gotten the song right. You play that for every guest? Different song for every oh, okay. guest. Okay, great. Usually they get a few bars into the lyrics and yeah. still don't get it. Oh, now, okay. To be yeah. fair, we did have an attorney who got it after a hint, but this oh. is the first one where it's like cold. I'm not, I'm, I'm impressed. So Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So let's get down to business. All right. So we know you're a jack of all trades uh, and uh, we wanted to hit on some of those things because I think a lot of our listeners would be very interested. Uh, so I'd like to take you back to, to when you spent some time on Wall Street. I think you were at Goldman. Is that right? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your experience there and, you know, some of the things that stick out in your mind is that you think some of the listeners may be interested of, of maybe they've never had those experiences, but that would be helpful in their life. I just went to my 20th college reunion. So I graduated in 1998. And I just remember that, um, I went to Princeton and every single Wall Street recruiter was having this kind of marathon session at the hotel across the street from the front gate where... Monday would be fondue night, Tuesday sushi night, Wednesday, you know, prime rib, surf and turf night, beer night. They take over the first craft brewery. And you had to duck as a graduating senior in the late 90s to not get a Wall Street or McKinsey offer. It was that ridiculous. I mean, I have to take you back to that time. It's the roaring bull markets. You know, everybody is talking about it. Uh, Internet stocks. I mean, people just coming around to learning what Amazon was and everything. Think 1998. This was Yahoo time, wasn't it? This was Yahoo time. Uh, Yahoo and Netscape. I, yeah. I own the Netscape stock. I bought it stupidly on the day of the IPO before I really, it was August of 95. So um, I couldn't really, I interviewed for a Rhodes Scholarship, all these other things. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I still have an LSAT kit from the Princeton Review that I have not <laughs> opened from 20 years ago. It's probably not going to help you when you take it now. Yeah, Just I, could not have, I could not have brought myself, check. you know, the, 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 the breaking case of emergency. You could always go to law school, and I, I never did do that. So I... Went, I interviewed for Goldman Sachs. They tried to hire me for a research position in New York, but then something opened up in Miami, my hometown, to do um, wealth management and some rotation with trading and everything else. And so I pounced and, and, and did that. And 
that really steeped me in the whole, it was an underwriting machine. They had hot IPOs every week and clients were just all over. You know, talk about the last hurrah of the commission. <clears throat> clients wanted you to charge them a fat commission because it was payola. You would turn around and give them things like eToys. Um, eBay, that was my first assignment. eBay. Well, you take a look at this prospectus for an IPO we're doing. It was May of 98. eBay. This guy, Pez, Pez Dispenser, everything. I came back, like, you're young. Tell us what you think about this. Like, this looks like a faith-based business model. Hmm. I wouldn't know, know what the hell eBay is, and I wouldn't invest in it. Shows you what I knew. We took double-click public, and then soon people just, it was pay-to-play. And they wanted these hot deals. And that just was the education that I had into 2000 when everything kind of peaked and, and started crashing after March of 2000. And I was at a fork in the road. Do I want to continue doing this? Do I want to go on the associate track? I actually hated that job. It's great to hate your first job. I tell people when I go back to college because you learn what you don't want to do and, and the, the, uh, the principles you don't want to compromise. And I asked myself, what did I last enjoy? And it was writing for my college newspaper. So I took a job um, with, uh, it was a magazine that used to exist called Smart Money. It was the Wall Street Journal's right. magazine. Yeah, I remember. And they let me go headlong into feature writing, and that was that. Was that. So Smart Money's not around anymore? It's out at smartmoney.com. The magazine was, can you imagine that at the turn of the century, and I sound like, it sounds like... <laughs> Some codger from the 1900s. We're talking about 1900. That's the turn of the century. In 1900 and the Edison light. No. So at the turn of the century, the issues, if I take you back and you look at the industry standard and money and fortune, they were so thick, they like thud factors. If your editor hit you over the head with it, you'd get a concussion. So they couldn't commission stories fast enough and hire reporters fast enough. And so Smart Money was supposed to be the smarter man's version of Money yeah. Magazine, which was a cash cow for Big time. tabloid-sized. Big tabloid yep. size, And that was, I, I cannot believe now we're, we're talking about that, but that actually did happen. So I went into New York, talked to Fortune, Money, all these places. Smart Money's like, you don't have to do grunt work and researching and fact-checking for us. We'll let you go headlong into feature mm. writing. And so I took, I took that opportunity, and very quickly they started having layoffs and the whole tech and financial services advertising boom turned to bust. And uh, I found myself having to be more enterprising as a person in New York. I mean, how are you, you know, you're not just long one stock, one publication. Do you have other gigs? So is that how you got involved with Business Week then? Did that parlay into the next career or was there something in between? Um, I said maybe this was a mistake. I started, what was smart was I started doing TV and radio, NPR and TV. And, and you know, you'd get side gigs and other things coming into it. And I got a fellowship to go to business school. In 2003, I said, you know what, let, let me just go and I'll build a better Rolodex. I'll make a better case to people. That didn't really help my case in journalism because in a secular and, and you know, cyclical way, journalism was just dying anyway. So I went to business school for two years. I came back. I did an internship at the New York Times. And then Business Week hired me out of that to be its Wall Street correspondent. And I rode that out. You were supposed to be inoculated at Business Week because it was owned by McGraw-Hill, the parent of S&P. S&P was itself a bubble. Mm -hmm. So I was able to ride that between 2005 and 2009 when they unceremoniously sold it to Bloomberg, and I stuck around for a few more years at Bloomberg. So what are some of the things that you remember covering at the time, things that stick out in your mind, <clears throat> different pieces you've covered that, that are really, you know, stick out today? First story I ever did for Business Week, and I wish I could get my mitts on it, I encourage all your listeners to try to find it, was questioning Lehman Brothers' valuation. This was... September of 2005. 
and saying, you know, one one analyst, his name is Dick Richard Beauvais. He's he, he gets a lot of press. He was jumping around and he put out a research report and said this is the this has become like the apotheosis of Wall Street business model. They have an asset management business that's booming in Newburger Berman. They have this, they have this. Lehman Brothers is now officially bulge bracket. You know, it's hit the peak. And I'm like, I don't know, man. Look at its fixed income and real estate exposure. I said it was titled a bank in bondage. <laughs> and then what was really cool was he put out a research note saying that in my 50 years of reading Business Week, this is the worst dreck I've ever seen. I mean, it's no consolation to me that, you know, Lehman Brothers then fell apart three years later. Right. It was almost 10 years ago. Uh, but I'm I'm really proud of that. And then I parlayed that into cover stories. I, I did a cover story on Jim Cramer, the madman of Wall Street, in October. And then I uh, the peak for me, really, the, the funnest thing I had was covering um, Columbia on the cover of Business Week in spring of 2007 as, I mean, from failed state to hot emerging market. It's unbelievable yeah. what that country had done in five years going into 2007. If we're now in 2018, you cannot believe how hard it is to get a hotel room in Medellin, all the bankers slinging pitch books and how it turned it, it's, it's act around. Mm-hmm. I mean, most Americans still don't know. It's the most premium valued market in Latin America, more than Chile, obviously more than Brazil. So was, was one of your specialties Latin America at the time? Cause it, uh, were you kind of in charge of kind of finding your own story regardless of where it was? Cause it's very diverse. Well, what's interesting, I grew up in Miami and I picked up Spanish mm-hmm. on the side. And by then you did not have uh, bureaus, Miami bureaus and this and that. And we got, we laid off our Latin American bureau chief. And so they're like, sure, if you find a story in South America, go do it. I went to Panama, I went to Peru uh, Colombia was was great for me because I just showed up on a hunch. I heard that investment bankers could not get hotel rooms in Medellin, and I just showed up. Well, in and the hotel? Were you like in the lobby trying to? to... No, I showed up in Bogota. I, I, this is, sounds so obnoxious, and you know, oh, fat Yankee American showing up. I was like, I need to interview your president. They're like, it is not possible. The president is traveling. We can give you the vice president for maybe twenty minutes. I was like, this is important. We of could make a cover story. Yes, <laughs> and so. They patted us down and it was so pompous. It was like fake it till you make it. Yeah. And I just showed up and said, what's the worst that could happen is it ends up being a short, a shorter feature about uh, investment bankers with PitchBook in Columbia. But then they let me do it in first person. It was kind of like a random walk down the most extreme emerging market. And you got to interview the vice president? I got to interview the president, the vice president. We almost got Shakira. And that it well, built, cause, cause that's that could have been the breakout story. <laughs> it built right my there. ego so much just going down there, and you know everybody was feeding me like they were this uh, this dish in Medellin. It's called bandeja paisa, which is like a thick. It's Pablo Escobar's favorite dish: rice, chitlins, corn. Everything's very hearty. And as they were feeding me, and the local press showed up and everything, they're like, "Okay, so tell us about your obesity epidemic. Is it true you eat McDonald's every day?" And I was like, "That we wanted to kind of you know." purge it out. But what was so cool was afterwards, the national radio station called me and interviewed me about it when it appeared as a cover thing. And the stock market of Columbia was rallying as I gave the interview over the phone. Nice. You so made the market move. It swelled the ego so much, but I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed going somewhere without a premeditated, pre-calculated thing and just letting the story work organically. And I've fallen in love with that country. You go back there regularly? I went back a couple times for research for the book. Okay. Um, but Medellin especially was shocking. I'll never forget. It's it's really sober. Is the person who was driving me from the airport in Medellin turned on the radio, and it was during the Virginia Tech shooting. Mm-hmm. And he said, "See, you think we're shooting each other constantly? Like, have you given Medellin a try?" 
unbelievable that the epicenter of narco-terrorism turned into an enlightened place with libraries being built. I don't want to be Pollyannish about it. It was still very poor, but it shows you uh, what can happen when a country finally gets its act together. Hmm. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I want to talk about the connection with Columbia and, and the book as well, but maybe we'll get to that in a few. That's interesting. And maybe there's a connection there um, uh, that we can explore. Let's talk about the podcast next. So how'd you get, how'd you get from Business Week down to uh, full disclosure, working with NPR folks in Richmond, Virginia, of all places? The favorite part of my job when I was at Business Week was doing NPR, doing shows like All Things Considered and Morning Edition and... Um, uh, talk of the nation. What I loved it. I love the fact that you'd go back to the office and hear from someone you hadn't communicated with since junior high, like, oh, I just heard you on the drive on All Things Considered. And it wasn't a wonky forum. It was, you, you, you know, you're getting four or five minutes and you need to explain it in a way that your mother would understand. And I fell in love with that. And by the time Bloomberg bought us in 2010, you had Bloomberg Radio and Business Week and Bloomberg TV under one roof. So I totally jumped at the chance to host a lot of Bloomberg Radio. There was a show in the mornings called Surveillance that they let me co-host with Tom Keen. A lot of institutional investors listen to that. I would do afternoons. And I was at a fork in the road by, by 2012. Do I double down and take a hosting gig here and really work my tail off? But at the same time, I had fallen in love with Richmond, Virginia. It's where my wife was from. It's where we had gotten married 10 years ago. And my son, um, he arrived early. We needed some help, and my in-laws were here, and I was at a, a, a true fork in the road. Do you, you know, the, what you're being taught in New York is stiff upper lip, get a nanny, have your wife deal with it. But my heart was really at home with my, uh, my infant son, and I had a 45-minute commute each way to think about it constantly think about mm -hmm. it every day of the week. Am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the wrong thing? Am I doing the right thing? And on the Maslow's hierarchy needs, I just realized if I don't kind of take a wrecking ball to how this is being built. This is not sustainable. I took a counterfactual. I sat down with my wife one night. It's like, what is the dream job you'd like? It's like, I'd be Charlie Rose's understudy. Charlie Rose was working out of the Bloomberg building. If it meant you had to work seven days a week like Charlie Rose and you were divorced and you lived out of a pied-à-terre and you never saw your son, would you still do it? I said, absolutely not. And so at that point she said, then we have no business being here. Then we need to rebuild your life in a way that is not a departure. You're, you're not mourning every morning when you leave your son. And that's what I'm still in the process of doing six years into this experiment. So to answer your question, and I know I'm being long-winded, I came here, um, was invited to a private dinner party. A colleague of your friends, Neil Patel, is in that wine room with me. And she's like, wow, you're trying to do an NPR show, but it's not an NPR town. Do you know that we have a radio production staff at the Martin Agency? And I was like, oh, interesting. It's like, you got to meet my colleague. Next thing I know, I'm meeting with her colleague, Neil Patel, and someone else, and they're wrangling VCU and everybody, and they set up my first taping at the Martin Agency. And by then, podcasting is exploding. Mm. And so you don't have to just go and kiss the ring of your public radio affiliate and substitute host for nine years. There was a more... There was a beeline way of doing it for a person who was resourceful. And I did that, and NPR's podcast network picked it up uh, within a year. So how does, how does one get picked up from a podcast network? How does that work? I mean, it gets into wonky territory also. I mean, do you listen to Spotify and these other things? Sure. So yeah. I love, I swear by Spotify, but now they're only taking certain podcasting conduits, like the Gimlet people, maybe PRI. But if you really truly want one-stop shopping for Aria Audio, I think that's the next battle. 
NPR obviously does not want you going away from the member station. They want you tuned in to whatever it is, 92.5, 88.9. Meanwhile, if you get any car past 2012, it's Bluetooth enabled. You're carrying your boombox with you, whether you're using Pandora, um, Spotify. NPR One is kind of, mm. it's a very tough thing for them because the member stations don't want you going away from their ecosystem, mm -hmm. but young people don't listen to terrestrial radio. So they came out and acquired me as one of their first independent, non-public non radio affiliated shows. Um, now I'm hoping to finally affiliate with the public radio station here because it's changed its its purpose. It's it's picking up more NPR stuff. It used to be just classical music for most right. of the day. Right. Uh, but you'll notice that a lot of the most listened to shows in the country are just straight to podcast. I mean, iTunes yeah. has truly become the battleground for it. You can't remove it off your phone. Anybody can get on. The barriers to entry, you see the stuff that we're working on here. You could buy this stuff at a guitar center, you know, and get some schlub like Matt Paxton to slap it together. I think we did, actually. Secondhand, maybe. Yeah. It works. So tell me about the podcast a little bit more. Obviously, I'm a listener, but what are what are some of the things you have going on with the podcast? What are your kind of hopes and dreams when it comes to the podcast overall? Look, I just want to, I want to learn something. I want you to learn something, and I want you to have fun listening to it with me. Um and hopefully it can somehow be commercialized. Nobody really knows where all this stuff is headed right now. There's a tremendous glut of content out there. Um, some people have gone the Patreon route. Some people have you know, put it up. It used to be that you'd have to have a big patron like Bloomberg or Reuters backing you. But it's become a whole new battle. I have live shows coming up here. I... Um, you know, I had my book on the side. It's become a, a, a potluck existence in Richmond, really. Yeah. So tell me about it. Can you, are you at liberty to talk about the live shows coming up or is that sure. still uh, under lock and key? Sure. Yep. Yeah. I'd love to hear it. Can you share a little bit more about what's going on? Yeah. We, um, you know, as a differentiating thing, so we're talking about Richmond here, right? You're familiar with the Richmond Forum. Sure. And a very important tell to me was everybody kept saying, like, we love the Richmond Forum. We love what it does. We love feeling like VIPs that night. But there's something like a 2,000 ticket backlog to it. Um, can, you, can you feed content into this bottleneck? Can you do something that's more nimble? So we tested it initially one night at the Hippodrome with a couple here called Young House Love. Have you ever heard of them? Uh, you, Penny says yes. I have not. I mean, they're so big with a millennial. Like Target wanted to hire them. It took a it's low a podcast, risk podcast, right? Um, no, it's a it's a okay. concept on YouTube in, okay. in, uh, in magazines, HGTV. They're just a couple who moved here to take advertising jobs who then started turning around homes and, and documenting it. And then big companies started hiring them. So we did that. That show sold out in the small theater of the Hippodrome. Nice. And then I started to go bigger. I was like, who else we got here? We got Chef Peter Chang. There was a big flowery profile of him in the New Yorker. What if I get him and a translator and what if he makes a five-course meal and we sell out the Hippodrome? And it went swimmingly. And sponsors showed up because not only do you get public radio wonks, but you get foodies, you get Chef Peter Chang types coming mm. from New York. That was great. Then I did one called Money on the RVA, where we took Jerry Parker, a famous investing legend, three more investing legends from Richmond, and made it more of a B2B thing. And that completely sold out the Hippodrome to the gills. Like, I couldn't. We hit up at the fire marshal level. So I kind of stumbled onto the fact if you bundle the taping, the content, the forum-type experience and give everybody a, a great dinner, a bespoke dinner, yeah. they're going to want to come back for that. And then I had to take book leave after that, unfortunately. But another one is coming up that we just locked down on October 18th. It's going to be called Ace the Midterms. 
we got the chief congressional correspondent of CBS News, the White House correspondent of NBC News, the political director of ABC News, all on stage. Awesome. I got Bill Isle to make red and blue drinks as a kind of a straw poll. Spirits, a moonshine company? It's a moonshine right? company. It's great. Penny and I got out. two great Richmond chefs, Karina's, who's here on Midlothian Turnpike with uh, wild ginger to mash up a dinner. Cool. And we're doing it at the Historical Society. So I keep trying to experiment yeah. and you know not lose too much money and then have people enjoy it and hopefully you know the public radio station will come into the fold here but certainly if you look at the forum the Richmond forum it's been a huge success i mean they sell out overflow rooms for people to watch on TVs yeah we were in the overflow room for a few years down in the basement they do a pretty good job but i think there's space in town for for exactly what you have cooking so well the thing also is it's very hard in this town i've always said it, to come here and do this without kissing the ring of two enormous corporate giants, one of which is hugely problematic for NPR reasons. I mean, you know, no defense, no tobacco. But the forum kind of marinates in that, and that's great. God bless them. Those people write big checks and make a lot of things possible. But I have I have a, a, a different set of guidelines I have to adhere to. So you have uh, – we'll, we'll, we'll save that for after the podcast. We'll, let's talk about the book. Uh, speaking of fast money um, – Hotel Scarface, where the cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami. Where did that come from? Without giving away a chapter in the book, I found it right before I left for college. I found an abandoned property that um, haunted me and sparked a fascination. And you give a college student a LexisNexis ID and an InfraTrack ID and everything, and you get homesick. And you start finding a lot of stories hubbed and spoked out of this one address. And then I... I, uh, pretty much realized that I'd stumbled upon what was Miami's Studio 54, at least. And I had to, the fact that it was nonfiction and that these people were out there, I had to have this story. I had to have it. And I put it down and I picked it up and put it down and picked it up. And finally, talk about a, a fortuitous day. It was May 1st, 2014. That was the day of my first show taping at the Martin Agency. I also got a call on the Downtown Expressway with an offer from, from Penguin Random House for the book. Okay. And so I took it. I said, you just have to do it. And yeah. it's now or never. So what's the experience of writing a book like? For me, it was torment. Yeah. Pure torment. Because I don't, I realized I don't like being in a room alone with a laptop. You think Jack Nicholson in The Shining. <laughs> <laughs> but I much prefer being here, you know, whites of the eye, seeing people, being a more my more gregarious self. But the writing a book thing is an exercise in ebbs and flows of of self-doubt and wasted days and no, I'm going about this the wrong way and blah, 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 blah. And so much of it is in the editing. It's in the just boring blocking and tackling and going back, do it over again, do it over again, do it over again, getting photo rights. And then your reward for all of that when they finally sign off on the manuscript is you have to go through a gauntlet of attorneys, corporate attorneys. And it just... It, it, it makes you miserable. I don't know if I ever want to write anything ever again, but I had to get this out of my system. How long did it take you to get the book done and edited and ready for publishing? Re- reporting and researching took about 15 years, <laughs> and I had, a, I had a locker, storage locker full of notes, and then writing, editing, everything took a good four years. So, so what are the economics of writing a book these days? Without revealing, obviously, any, any sort of information for from your particular situation, but what, you know, we have folks who we work with that, that, you know, are contemplating doing something similar. And I know you can self-publish and do all that stuff with, with these days, but how does it work working with a big publishing company? And, and how's that different from self-publishing? I mean, 
I've always heard that the standard you aspire to was to, in any job as a writer, the dream, not even in adjusted for inflation, was to get paid a dollar a word. And that's not even the case anymore in book publishing. Uh, the overwhelming majority of books do not earn their advance what they pay out to you. You're more, more, much more than likely going to disappoint. And a first-time author, especially one not writing in the Wall Street beat, I had so many unsolicited offers to write that next incremental book about Goldman Sachs or Bernie Sanders after 2008. I just didn't, I couldn't imagine myself in a room doing, I just didn't want to write that. This was my passion project. So I got offered a, a measly, I wouldn't say measly, a modest advance. You have to pay your agent 15% of that. You get paid a third upfront upon signing. You get a third on delivery of manuscript and a third on delivery of the book to hit the stands. It's it's very unattractive from a financial perspective. I know that a lot of people in this world use publishing as a loss leader. I get paid a lot under asset management, does does that. I can afford to write the little book of value investing and not care what I get paid for it. I mean, uh, uh, me on the other hand, this is my this is my livelihood. So is there so based on sales, is there a volume based kind of uh, revenue stream too coming your way? <clears throat> if you break if you break. Um, uh, certain number past the advance if they calculate like say four thousand four dollars per book is the thing that the company puts in then you could theoretically get paid after that but i didn't make up my advance it was it was actually heartbreaking i thought i definitely had a new york times bestseller on my hands yeah. I, I just missed it well we have a wide audience here on the podcast and we're gonna do our best to help you hit those numbers i'm gonna get those four readers in farmville <laughs> come on man yeah now, did I hear something about, is there some sort of TV thing going on or anything yeah. you can tell us about that? One of the nice things was it, uh, uh, the book came out in October of 2017, and a month later there was uh, serious interest in adapting it. Because as you know, we're in a golden age of content, and everybody wants to sell to Netflix and HBO and Hulu. And so they stepped up. Obviously, some a, a lot of jokers come into the fold like, hey – how about we option it and pay you 150 bucks and you, you go on this ride with us and you roadshow with us? I was like, yeah, thanks. No. <laughs> uh, but then a couple of serious people did step up and said, I want to option your time and we're going to try to get a pilot together and then sell that to whether it's Netflix or HBO or BBC. I mean, as you know, you probably have an Apple TV at home. Sure. Yeah. All of this stuff is, there's so much stuff out there. There's not enough time to do it. I would, I would love to see this um, come to the screen. Uh, film studio named Stone Village acquired it in November and we're in the process of interviewing several showrunners so I hope it sees light of day yeah that'd be awesome what's a showrunner it's a CEO of a show it's effectively okay. the emperor okay. that delegates everything it's like your little fiefdom under a studio okay. and it's actually right now it's, it's a total seller's market if you're a showrunner there's so many concepts that are trying to lock up like was it David Simon did The Wire Right, and he's doing the deuce on HBO. People who have gifted records, who've who've had hits, whether on the networks or the paid or you know FX or these other places, they get so many. They get locked up in like five series deals. So it's mm -hmm. really hard to find. It's a rainmaker, effectively. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's switch gears a little bit now. So this is going to be the rapid fire round. So we're going to go go at your financial prowess. Promise not to put you on the spot, but just want to get some opinions here. And I'm just going to kind of shoot from the hip a little bit here. You've probably heard of this thing called the fiduciary rule mm -hmm. back in the day. I'm not sure if it's still around. I know Dave here has done a lot of work on that through NAPFA, but what are your thoughts on that and maybe have a discussion on you know, what it was, what it is, what it will be, if anything. What are your initial thoughts on that? 
on the rule. Do you want to? I swear it's not name dropping. This is exactly what happened. March 2009, I was on an Amtrak with Jack Bogle going to profile him for Business Week in D.C. where he was giving an impassioned presentation a defense of the fiduciary rule. It was a different time. The wounds of the crash and subprime were still very fresh in everyone's memory. And I was shocked in this that if you were to explain it in really plain English to mom and dad and your average investor out there, most would assume that the fiduciary rule is law, that it's a given. Of course, that mutual fund table at Wells Fargo is going to sell me something in my interest. Of course, they have my fiduciary interest at heart. They don't understand that many practitioners out there can, in fact, market first and subordinate their promise to, to do what's right by you in a responsible financial way. And I'm looking up at your frame. You have a fiduciary oath here. I mean, that's the saddest thing to me is the disconnect that most people would assume that that's statutory, that that must have been law for 70, 80 years. And in fact, no, we actually had to go and fight against the financial services industry to codify this. And in the end, it was kind of short-lived because the Trump administration came in and there was tremendous pressure to reduce this. We knew that we know that cross-selling is the name of the game. If you're a Bank of America Merrill Lynch, it's all about, you know, push the product, push the product. Mm -hmm. And um, I was I was in that ecosystem and I didn't I didn't like it. I, I didn't like, even though we were dealing with high net worth clients, I didn't like the fact that you know, they were paying this amount with a premium bulge bracket firm and they thought they were getting their interests prioritized. And in reality, that wasn't the case. So maybe two questions off that from that experience and from all of the years since. <clears throat> what is an individual to do, right? How do they find out who they should be talking to? And when they're interviewing folks, what are the questions that you think people should ask? Did you see that great commercial for the CPA test or something? They got this really gnarly, scrungy-looking DJ, and they gave him a haircut, and they covered his tats and everything. It's CFP board. CFP yeah. board, and he was giving a talk about yeah, yeah. yeah, so diversification, and people were polling, wow, he looks really trustworthy. And then they showed him the split screen at a rave and everything. Actually, he doesn't know squat. Yeah, It's so hard. I had the I had the fortune and misfortune of working on Wall Street to know what I want and don't want out of it, and I am a devout boglehead. I'm a, I'm an indexer, and I try to bring my family into the indexing fold, and I might dabble in dimensional funds and and other areas if I find a fiduciary a fiduciary that's going to be selling me those things. Otherwise, I might use a, a a robo advisor. I don't know how to explain this to my mom. I don't know my mom. I'll never forget, it was a stormy day, 1997, we walked into an old uh, First Union Wachovia branch and they, they showed us a desk and they put us in a Putnam over-the-counter emerging growth fund. It was the worst fund, a ridiculous like 500 basis point upfront mm. thing. And yeah, I mean, you go to your bank and it's FDIC insured and you, you know, they're, they're, they have a desk right there. You would think that they're, it's all under the same thing. I don't know how to explain this to people. I know that there are good companies out there. I mean, TIAA mostly observes something like this, Vanguard. There are people out there that want to be known as the good people. And if they spend time doing like what you're doing with, with investor education and investor outreach, I feel like the message is going to get through. But um, the purse string holders are still the big diversified mega banks um, that have various lines of, I mean, you know, what what is Merrill Lynch doing at Bank of America. They want to cross-sell Merrill Lynch products. Mm -hmm. It's a very hard thing to talk about. And um, I think Vanguard could do a lot more. I think um, 
you know, Jack Bogle's only getting older and he's with a transplanted heart. How many true torchbearers do you have for Elizabeth Warren? Though it is Warren? a 30 plus year old transplanted sure. heart, so it's a successful. Elizabeth Warren, they depict her as shrill, as a harpy, and you know, so who is your true torchbearer for something like that? I do think there, there are new voices that have stepped into the fold after 2008. Somebody we're going to have on the show for another time is Josh Brown, the reform broker, mm-hmm. who stepped away from slinging product like that. Um, but it's it's just so very hard to get through. To this day, you turn on financial television, nine out of ten of the ads are not fiduciary-run companies there. Yeah. I'd say ten out of ten, yeah. perhaps. And and so maybe switch but a bit But here's to- the deal. That's where the margin is. Sure. Sure. Where are you going to – I mean, how are you guys going to get paid? You have a nice – you have a nice office here in Central Farmville. Like, <laughs> I mean, you can build it up on volume and everything. I love your fiduciary oath, but it, it's so and, – and commissions are dying and no one is – the spreads just aren't there. It's a, it's a dog-eat-dog business. So if we prognosticate a bit, looking forward, um, fiduciary rule is uh, actually st- still the law, but the SEC is promulgating three new rules around the way that <clears throat> individuals should uh, behave. Where are we going? Given what you said about nine out of ten of the ads on TV are from firms that say, "Oh, we have the client's best interests at heart," but actually, we know in the back end they're they're cross selling. Where are we going? I think that this is going to be diluted even more because the memory of two thousand eight is not particularly pungent anymore. Even though a lot of people have mm-hmm. not recovered their wealth, people very nearly had pitchforks in two thousand eight and two thousand nine with the AIG City bailout. I mean, City. Geez, how many times did it have to go to the trough? And the whole private profit socialized risk thing got people indignant. That's that's so long ago at this point. We hit new records on the market. People are not thinking about real estate, and no one went to jail for subprime. I think that another different kind of crash is going to happen, and then there'll be congressional hearings and blue ribbon panels about it. I'm cynical about these things. I mean, I was covering the research scandals and Enron and Telecom and, and Wall Street and the Spitzer reforms and WorldCom and Tyco. Who the heck remembers that now? That's 15 right, years ago. Right. Short memories. And if you're telling people to remember you know, Countrywide and the money market funds that were sold to people that ended up breaking the buck and other things, I'm just I'm not hopeful on this. I just think that the best we could do is be good guys, and I think of myself as a good guy. Go out there, bring on the interesting guests, the people like the reform brokers. Talk about my experiences. I actually lost a lot in the market as an investor. I bought a lot of the bad stuff back in the day, and it was for a reason, I think, so I could turn around and, and tell the world about my cautionary tale in a way that uses easy-to-understand language for people. That, that makes my heart sink. I didn't answer your question, but I'm not optimistic on this. I look at somebody like an Elizabeth Warren and she knew her stuff. She was a great source when she was at Harvard, but she is a lightning rod for the industry. There's nothing to get Wall Street as lathered up as the prospect of her. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've worked with uh, the fiduciary rule and then now with the SEC for the past five years on trying to advance regulation that's in the public's best interest. And you are going up against very, very deep wallets. And in a uh, former administration, <laughs> uh, it was a David Goliath story, and uh, we were able to advance things in the consumer's best interest. And now it's it's a lot harder because the political environment, perhaps it's going to take what you just stated, uh, the, the next shoe to drop to get people's memories more But what is the next crash going to be? And could it be in ETFs or leveraged ETFs or something like this? Like, what is it? I, when we were looking around at Business Week in 2007, like, where is the next crash going to be? I was looking at China, Brazil, and meantime, the WMDs were here, right? We blew ourselves up. So 
And I think if you go back and look at the SNL crisis and the reforms after that, I mean, this is constantly um, regulating by looking in the rearview mirror, and that makes me sad. Um, some of the great people at the SEC and the NASD, they go off and, and become white-collar attorneys, and they make much more money defending the bulge bracket firms. So who are people to trust with, with their money these days? I think you mentioned earlier about your mom or your family trying to get them, you know, what kind of advice do you give people? Obviously, I know you're not in the business of giving advice per se, but you have an opinion. Who can you trust these days? I, I am just so impressed by what Vanguard has done. I mean, that's something I would absolutely take as a sponsor to the show, but they don't sponsor. They don't. What's great is the correspondence I get from Vanguard is we've just reduced the cost on this fund and mm -hmm. here's how much less you're going to have to pay. Yeah. And I cover myself in glory if my sister-in-law comes to me and says, look, I have a messy portfolio. The broker has since passed away and he's passed it on to other people here. What if we wanted to put it? And then all these options like a Vanguard retirement fund or a total index. You could at a cocktail party, instead of talking about Cisco and Priceline, say, there's two Vanguard ETFs. So you could kind of set it and forget it. Yeah. And the, the, the beauty of that simplicity is great. But I'm also intellectually intrigued by things like dimensional strategies, uh, fundamentals, uh, the robo-advisors are really fascinating to millennials right now. If you look at the betterment and, and wealth front, people kind of trying to take human emotion out of out of it. The, the huge opportunity to me, and you may have seen this, is I think millennials and, and Gen Xers and Gen Zers are on the brink of inheriting something like $30 trillion over the next 15 years, and they're decidedly underinvested in the market. It's still a, a gun-shy, you know, 2008-minded be in cash type thing. And there's going to have to be some sort of reckoning and reconciliation over that. What do you think about the fidelity rule, uh, fidelity move to make the no expense ratio funds? I don't know if you heard about that. It was about a week ago where fidelity came out and said, we're going to undercut Vanguard. We're not going to charge anything. I had someone come in and say, wow, well, why don't we go there? The most painful story I've ever written in terms of uh, execution and having to deal with management was a feature story on fidelity for business week. It's called Fidelity's Divided Loyalties. They make so much money on managing 401ks and other things that their proxy votes are effectively for sale. Like if their companies, you know, you know, Home Depot was doing bad things, United Health was doing bad things, why should they go out and be anything but a rubber stamp from a corporate governance perspective if they're more concerned about getting these relationships? And unfortunately, the stock picking world is dying. They're seeing that that business kind of diminish. They reluctantly have these Spartan index funds for people that they, they put stuff into. They're still just asset gatherers. Um, at this point, like, what else are you going to do? Vanguard and BlackRock are, are hoovering in all this money. So what? You don't advertise, you know, $9 commissions anymore. That's old news to me. Vanguard mm -hmm. a long time ago said, don't pay any commissions on Vanguard ETFs. And then for your first several stocks, if you ever want to buy stocks, I don't buy stocks, you know, don't pay commission. To think that I was actually comparing brokers 20 years ago based on commission. It's just not a consideration anymore. No, times have changed, that's for sure. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to give you the last word. All right. Tell me a couple things, you know, to I our listeners. I want to hear from you guys. I've yeah. talked your head well, off Well, that's our show, so know, we're, you're here fair. for us. You're it's here not for fair. us. Tell me you want, about yourself. What do you want to hear about? What? Tell me about evolution. Oh, you How did it evolve? Well, actually, I'll, I'll take that. And again, I... We, you know, as, as people know, we, we don't like to talk about ourselves here too much, but we evolved right around 2008, 2009. For Dave, it was a little bit earlier, which was we thought there was a better way to take care of people. Frankly, when, when Rome was burning, right. you know, wherever we were at the time, I won't mention any names, but 
I didn't think that uh, Nero was playing the right tune. And so we started from scratch. And as you know, we or maybe don't know, we provide flat fee advice and management. So we, we believe in the Vanguard approach or the DFA approach and believe that people should should get more than what they pay for. And, uh, you know, our discussions, the, the implementation of the portfolio is the easy part, right? So you get a structure for a portfolio. How do you get it the most cheap way possible? But then what are the other considerations? Taxes, um, you know, withdrawals. A lot of our clients are creating income for themselves. Sure. Um, what happens if something happens in your life? So you're, do you have an estate plan? Do you have risk management in place? So that's our job. So I think Evolved really kind of talks to the fact of financial advice or is more than a broker. And uh, that's what pe- people who are looking for more, uh, for a more evolved level of service, that's why they come to us. And we're planning first firm. Yeah. So managing a portfolio in a long-term, strategic, low-cost, tax-efficient, optimal manner, that's not something that you need to be talking with the client about on a weekly or quarterly basis. But all the things that come up in life you know, you changed your job, you had a child, do you want to buy another property? All of these various things, the choices that you have, you need a decision-making partner. And that's what planning is really about. And financial planning, which is, with hope, the first new profession of the 21st century, is different from what we've seen in the 20th century of here, buy this. Because similar to other professions where you're providing ideas and advice. Financial planning is helping people work through the various decisions in their lives so that they are comfortable and confident that they are making informed choices. Mm. <clears throat> That's different. And sadly, there aren't, as, there aren't nearly enough firms. Um, we're a NAPFA member firm, mm. National Association of Personal Financial Advisors is the um, largest uh, association of fee-only financial planners in the country. And we're trying to change what people, especially in the Richmond area, think about financial planning, you know, client by client. And John and I have said over the years, you know, you, um, you often come to see us second because you've been through what others don't provide, and you realize you, you need should advice. put it on your thing. We're number one when it comes to number two. No, <laughs> <laughs> that might mean something different. No, I've seen that on a septic tank truck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, honestly, I thought you could maybe get the rights to that. But I, have I to like say, that. That's one of the one. things yeah. I follow a guy on Twitter, Eric Nelson at Servo Wealth. I believe it's in Oklahoma. He's a he's a died in the wool dimensional advisor, okay. and he's always posting numbers that. And it actually tickles my mind, and I engage with him. He's like, you could spend your entire life being worried about fees, and you're going to miss the. Comp- Missed the train completely because look at what a DFA balanced portfolio has done in the lost decade of the aughts. Look at what it's done now. Look at what small international value has done. It behooves you at times, very often actually, to to bring in an advisor, a DFA gatekeeper. And I push back and say, why doesn't Dimensional just offer these as ETFs? Why does it? Why don't you let people have it? Yeah. Um, yeah, they don't want to dilute the brand. Yeah. They, you know? Austin, yeah. Austin, you know, pushes back on me at it, but I always watch that stuff from afar, especially when they talk about small value international. That's a product I would actually. That is one product I would pay for active management for. I really would. And there's some income people that you know, some uh, a friend of mine. She just did, uh, you know, she was a mentor at Goldman. She now runs a, an income shop 
and she does all this stuff like triple net lease, triple net lease REITs and esoteric ways of getting oh income that it's become a, that's a type of person where you need an active manager. It's not going right. to pass through in a kind of kings of dividend income. So even though I'm a, a oh, look, I'm a nice Jewish boy, but I'm a devout indexer. I'm a devout agnostic when it comes to that. I do leave a big part of, of, of my mind kind of open intellectually to diversifying into some smart active strategies. Paul Samuelson, Nobel Prize laureate, uh, Fed president from 73, had a great quote that said, investing should be like watching grass grow. And if you want, you want excitement, take $50 and go to Vegas. And uh, maybe some of that more active stuff fits yeah, into that. Yeah, but if you take a tenth of an acre and grow pot, it makes it right. exciting. You can watch that right. grow. It's a yeah, cash crop. That's, that's your fifty dollars. Go to Vegas. Note no, that was seventy three. <laughs> that's a lot more than fifty today. <laughs> you know, fun, fun money to, to make it interesting, to make it exciting. I love investing. I love looking at the Vanguard portfolio. I love it when Schwab comes out in a fair war. I've become a wonk, and I actually took this accidental detour into Wall Street. As I told you, there were no other jobs being offered, and for years I asked myself, why did I do that? Why did I hate that job? Why did I lose money? Now I realize why I lost money. There was a reason. As, as Nada Surf put it, maybe this weight was a gift, like I had to know what I could lift. Anyway, <laughs> I have talked your head off. No, no. That's why we had you here. We knew we were getting, and we're very appreciative. Uh, Robin Farzad, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And for all those out there, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Podbean. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, at EvoFiPodcast. Or shoot us an email at EvoFiPodcast at gmail.com. And check out Robin on Full Disclosure. And check out his book, Hotel Scarface. Thank you. Thanks all. Have a good day. Thank you.